Hello, welcome to episode 65 of Crackle Comics Weekly Reviews. I'm Mike, joined alongside by Dan and Vince. No uh, no fluffy intro, we're going to jump right in because we got 18 books to get through this week. It's a very large rundown. So I'll kick things off with Batman the Detective number two. This is the second issue of this miniseries, originally titled just Batman the Dark Knight. Tom Taylor, Andy Kubert, and Sandra Hope on inks. This issue sees Batman, with the help of the new Squire, track down one of the goons that has connections to the white Batman cult that we saw back in issue one. We also saw a very interesting gentleman ghost in the first issue as well. But we get some fun chase interrogation sequences with Batman and the new Squire here. Batman plants a tracer on the guy and waits for him to lead him to the location. In the meantime, moves Knight to a secure location for safety. And aboard a train to Paris to track the signal, Bruce encounters Henry Descartes, who gives him like basically the information to tell him what's going on. And upon meeting, you know, the the location he gives him, the cult, you know, kills the thug by uh, slitting his throat. And then Descartes, they get him too. But Batman, you know, the, their whole thing is that the cult's beliefs are that Bat- if Batman left you alive, he made a mistake. So it's easier just to kill you. So they know that Batman will go and save Descartes instead of trying to track them down and stop them. So that's the whole reason why they attack Henry Descartes overall. So at the end of this, Batman's left holding a now bleeding out Henry Descartes as the, the cults getting away. This was, I think a lot better than the first issue from a story and art standpoint. I thought Kubert's art was a little messy in the first issue. It's a little bit better here. A lot of action, but I am left wondering where the detective angle really is. Like I said, originally it was just Batman the Dark Knight. Maybe the series should have just been that as originally intended, because currently two issues in, I'm wondering where the detective angle is. But overall, I'm liking it in this kind of future state. Not Well, not future state, but future tale of Batman. He's a little older, and he's got the the kind of the gimmicked you know trench coat costume. So I think Dan read this. So I'll let you chime in. I think you're just jumping to the second issue. Yeah, when you said future state, I just got triggered all of a sudden. <laughs> God, I don't want to think about not that. Not future state, just set in uh, the future. Yeah, Jesus. Uh, no, but this is this is really good. Like you said, the art is just amazing. I mean, just the, you know, just the the, the coloring that's going on here. I don't know who's doing the coloring here. Is this, is this also Cubert or is it someone else? I didn't. I off the top of my head, I can't remember. Okay, but I think. I can't remember if Sandra Hope was doing inks on Kubert in the first issue either, but I'm pretty sure she was. Yeah, no, I mean, this, just from our perspective, this is very crisp, and I, I loved it. And yeah, I guess we'll have to wait until next issue to kind of see where this goes, but, you know, I'll give it another issue. Yeah, well, Tom Taylor at DC right now, he's got this, Nightwing, and then I enjoyed Deceased, so he's kind of the man at DC for me right now in terms of the guy who can do no wrong. So I'll stick along for the ride, but Black Cat, is still an ongoing book for you. Yes, it is. And this uh, kind of just accelerates a little bit more. So Black Cat number six, written by Judd McKay, art by Michael Dowling, colors by Brian Reber. Uh, so the story opens to Black Fox exchanging Manhattan for an eternal life with a creepy character. I guess he's from King and Black. Not really too... I, I just, I'm drawing a blank here. Uh, so Black Cat is upset about this and swipes and tries to kill Black Fox, to which he tells her that she is immortal as well. So they're both immortal and, like, cannot be killed, I guess. So Black Fox escapes with, like, a little smoke bomb. And Black Cat meets up with her lackeys outside of Manhattan that is now covered with gold vines. 
Um, we see Spider-Man show up and be like, hey, do you know what's going on with this? And then Black Cat's like, no. And then he's like, all right, bye-bye. And she's like, I can't believe you fell for that. Uh, but anyways, Black Cat informed her team that Manhattan is being taken into the vaults. So basically being taken somewhere off of this universe, I guess. Uh, Black Cat gets captured on purpose by Odessa, who we've learned, we talked about before. She's kind of the leader of this guild. And she tells her about uh, Black Fox and how he traded away Manhattan, how she, excuse me, needs Odessa's help. So Black Cat's lackeys show up, and with the help of Odessa, she is sent to the vaults with a little magic to go get back Manhattan and hopefully deal with the Black Fox, who up until this point has been like a mentor for her. And obviously this goes back to her origin. Yeah. So kind of a neat little twist here. Black Fox kind of just like totally throwing black cat under the, under the bus and taking what he wants for himself and leaving her to pick up the remains, I guess, but he is a thief. So I'm not surprised there, but yeah, this is definitely still going on. I think we get a reference in this book to Black Cat Iron Man suit that she wore back in the first volume of her stuff a couple of years ago, or maybe a year ago at this point. But yeah, this was pretty good. And again, trying to get my co-host to actually read it, but I guess they'll read it in trade. I think some of the trades are already out. So if you guys are ever interested, need something for an IST order, definitely pick it up. Here's a big chunky. We have the DC Festival of Heroes at the Asian Superhero Celebration. This is one of those, you know, $10 giant anthologies. There are 11 freaking stories in here. So I'm going to try and go relatively quickly as I run through them or the ones that are notable. So first, we have the best Cassandra Kane story in years from Mariko Tamaki and Marcus Toe. It's just fun. It really gets her character and her background and everything like that, and we get some nice action. Then there's a super disposable, very short story of this new Green Lantern character from, I believe it's an OGN called Green Lantern Legacy. And the art has a neat indie quality to it. I assume it's the same team from the OGN. But other than that, it's like I think it's only like four pages, and I don't know this character there is a really dope Connor Hawk pinup by Cliff Chang, who drew Green Arrow Black Canary under Judd Winnick before the New 52, which recently got recollected, just the Winnick run, all in one fat paperback. However, the Connor Hawk story that followed, in my opinion, was just fine. It's him teaming up with new Superman, Gene Luen Yang's Chinese Superman character. And they're both kind of written as jerks to each other and in general. Um, mostly new Superman is just like a jerk in general. And then Connor is an asshole to him. Then there's a Damien story that I don't give a shit about. And then kind of the big deal here is we do get a major change in DC universe and continuity here. I guess Leanne Harper, who is the daughter of Roy Harper, AKA speedy slash red arrow slash arsenal slash, yeah, I guess Arsenal. That's what he was called in the 90s as well. The The daughter of Roy Harper and Cheshire. She is back because she died before the New 52. And she's now back. Her nickname is Shoes. She's rocking the mask just like her mother. And she's going by the codename Cheshire Cat. She's kind of getting into vigilantism. And apparently she's been back a little bit. She's appearing in Ramby's Catwoman. Get a footnote to check that out if you want to. So the story here, uh, the art on this 
uh, Leanne Harper story by Audrey Mock is really cool. But the sudden return of Leanne, aging her up a bit, putting her in a hero identity. For some people who are longtime Green Arrow or Titans fans, it may take some time to adjust to. And some people may not dig it, but it's cool. Um, I think regardless, most people will be happy that she's no longer dead. Uh, the DC Wiki claims that this short Dustin Wen story, which also stars Cassandra Kane, so she gets two here. The, D- the Wiki says it introduces a character called Abuse. You know, like I said, introduced. So apparently this is his first appearance. I don't know if he'll ever appear again, because as far as I know, Dustin Wen is not doing like Cassandra Kane series or anything like that. And I'm not sure if another creator would pick this up. I totally thought it was Clayface being a weirdo and like transforming into a little kid just to like hang out with Cass and not actually not look as weird being a giant clay monster or a grown man sitting next to her. That's kind of how I took it because I know that those characters were both, you know, in the James Tynan Detective Comics run. And I think they had like a little bit of a relationship because they both have that like outcast kind of feeling. I've seen fan art and stuff. I haven't read that run. Then there's a story of Grace Choi going on a date with Thunder, one of Black Lightning's daughters. It would have been cool to get Judd Winnick back to write this because these char- Grace was introduced and these characters had a relationship in Outsiders in the early 2000s. Um, but I'm pretty sure every creator, at least the main writers and artists in here, is of Asian background. So I guess Judd Winnick wouldn't, you know, wouldn't work or whatever for the concept. Uh, the story itself, whatever, didn't didn't really interest me that much. But apparently, slightly similar to Leanne Harper, this is the first time Grace has ever appeared post Flashpoint, which is kind of weird. It's always weird when that when it's like, oh, this is the first time this character has appeared in this continuity. Then there's an Amico Queen story. It has really ridiculous, like cartoony, childish art. Not in a bad way. Like it's not bad art, but I just. Couldn't really take it seriously, and honestly, I don't really care about Amico Queen at all. There's Katana story, which, going to be honest, I thought it was kind of cringe. It tries to go for certain messages, and I think it's a little overwritten a lot of times. And we also get the thing here where some of these superheroes, they're just being jerks to each other for no reason, like Cyborg and Blue Beetle are here. I don't know why they're hanging out with Katana. That's not really explained. I guess they just like were the ones to answer the call. It's a really weird trio to team up, but they're like jerks to each other. I just don't like that. And there's like a book that we'll discuss later on, maybe two, where it's also just superheroes being jerks to each other. There's an Adam story, which is all right. That He has a really cool feat. It's the classic, like he's shrunken down and he's dealing with something inside of someone's body. Just like, you know, classic moments of Ant-Man or, or even there's, a, there's an issue where Ant-Man helps Iron Man shrink down to go into Captain America's body in the 90s. And then the Adam story ends with Bruce Wayne randomly showing up. And it kind of uses that whole classic, you know, much brought up by people who are not that familiar with comics saying where it's like, well, if Bruce really wanted to help out, he would just invest in the community. He would make hospitals and schools. And so this kind of brings that up, but kind of spins it in a good way. So that's, you know, more interesting and not like, you know, like just a dumb throwaway comment. There's a Captain Marvel slash Shazam story. I'm sure it's fine. It's written by Gene Yang. And I guess it's introducing a character that DC's hyping up. Maybe he'll appear some more. It's like a monkey prince, which I guess is inspired by 
I think it's journey to the West because it's from the Eastern perspective. But uh, I don't care. So I didn't really pay close attention to that because I just don't really want to read a Captain Marvel story in 2021, the way DC handles that character. And then in the back, honestly, what, you know, some of these anthologies, especially when they're around a theme like this, we get some like editorial content. And here we have some nice character bios in the back. Um, Just like, here's the first appearance of this character. Here's a brief bio, who created them, stuff like that. Those are cool to see. Grunge from Gen 13 is on the cover, the main cover at least. He's in a pinup, the pinup with Connor Hawk, I believe. And he's referenced offhand as like a joke in a story because someone in the story is cosplaying as Grunge, which is a weird thing to cosplay because he basically doesn't have a costume. He's just like a dude who's shirtless with tattoos. But far as I know, unless it was one of the stories that I didn't pay super close attention to, Grunge does not actually appear in any of these stories. In my opinion, it's for the better because I don't really like the Wildstorm universe being integrated with the DC universe. But whatever. It just seemed really odd. Yeah, as far as overall, I thought this was pretty high batting average as far as these big anthologies go. The choices of the characters, you know, I'm sure it was just like whatever the editors and creators were like, this is what I want to do. Um, but it's just interesting because we get two Cassie Kane stories. So, like, I guess technically, like, I don't know who DC's, like, highest-ranked character of Asian descent is, like, as far as popularity and tier list. Because, like, is it Katana? Is it, like, it doesn't make sense to me that it would be Cassandra Kane. Um, Connor Hawk is kind of like, I don't know, he has asterisks on it. But, um, I, all right, I'll stop talking about this issue. I was going to say, you, you buried a good part of it, but it was very good. The the Jean Yang story introducing the Monkey Prince, there's kind of a fun dichotomy with it because Captain Marvel being Billy Matson, it wants to be a hero while the Monkey Prince, he, he's like a kid that also turns, he turns into the Monkey Prince. They both get captured by Dr. Savannah, who, by the way, you, maybe you should have read it because it was like classic Dr. Savannah. It wasn't, you know, orig, uh, what, the Shazam movie Savannah. So I think you missed out on that one. Because uh, they both got captured and they save each other, but the whole angle is he doesn't like superheroes, so maybe, maybe you wouldn't have liked it. But I think you should have checked that one out. But overall, I remember seeing the solicitation for this, getting excited uh, because the creators and talent involved, and it definitely lived up to that hype for me. Seeing a lot of these characters take the spotlight and with the creators involved, I thought it was really, really good. Um, it's definitely ranked in the higher tier for me of these anthologies. That Mer- the America Tamaki Cassandra came back girl story. I mean, you already said it. It was definitely great with the Marcus Toe art. Though my favorite story had to actually be the Connor Hawk and uh, New Superman story because the team up between Connor Hawk and New Su- Superman, uh, I think it was really kind of cool, fun dynamic that they had in there. Really love the art there by Kumar as well. well. I believe we were glowing about their work on Detective Comics last year. So cool to see see the art there again. The Ram V and Audrey Mock story with Cheshire being the big reveal that it's Leanne. I, I've been reading Ram V's Catelyn, but only after Joker War. So I can't remember if she's shown up since then. It's only been like two issues. I don't think so. But yeah, I'm happy she's back. It it kind of fixes one of the big stains of DC history with Cry for Justice, where she died in a really dumb way. And also, you know, low point for Arrow characters in the DC universe as well. So I'm fine with her being back. And, you know, she was a baby. So I'm not as much mad about aging her up here as 
as I was for like, let's say John Kent, because he was like already a kid doing superhero stuff. And then he just aged him up and for no reason. So this time it kind of makes more sense here. I think the next of these anthologies is the pride special, which also looks to be good. So yeah, off the top of my head, uh, I think this one ranks really high, but I'll move into our next book, which is Joker number three. I have to say, this is James Tynan the fourth and Guillaume March. I didn't, you know, I didn't talk about the first two issues as we talked before about having some severe Joker fatigue, but on the encouragement of some friends, I checked this one out and I was very happy to discover that this isn't a Joker book as much as it is a Jim Gordon book. So after Joker War, Gordon's no longer commissioner of the GCPD, and he's contacted who this by this woman who we later learn in issue two was is working for the Court of the Owls to kill the Joker. And they hired Gordon to do it because they look at him as the most qualified person to track down the Joker out of years of dealing with him. So they're going to pay him like something, some exuberous amount of money, like I think like $2,500 million or something, something like crazy. And because Gordon needs the money, he's like, yeah, I'll do it. No questions asked. But he's kind of like fighting with Batman and Oracle about it because for him to do this, he's getting help from Batman. So he's he's got access to the whole Bat computer. And also in issue two, it's revealed that he knows that Barbara's Oracle slash Batgirl, so it, it, it not it, possibly insinuating that he also knows Batman is Bruce. But if you're like me, you kind of also you know Gordon might have always known. He just doesn't acknowledge it, so not a huge deal there. But he's on the trail of the Joker, where he's last seen in South America in issue two. He's kind of overthrown this house by of a drug lord, and he's overtaken it, which has spawned this cartel war. So just as Gordon is going to the address that his last location is in, he's pulled into this mess by the Joker. So now he's come face to face with the Joker for the first time in the series. And now it's like, well, you're going to have to help me because there's this cartel of people that are coming here and we got to fight our ways, fight our way out of it, which is kind of like a fun dynamic that we're going to see here where what's Gordon going to do? When is he going to make that moment to take the shot? Will he take the shot? We'll see. The opening sees a flashback of Killing Joke, which was actually, you know, I expected at some point, but I thought it was done good because the coloring was the original coloring uh, of the book. It wasn't the the 20th anniversary recolor where they kind of just mute the crap out of it. Um, so that was nice to see. Uh, Guillaume March is killing it on this book, though. I would say this is definitely the weakest issue, but the most intriguing ending is now, like I said, we have Gordon face to face. And uh, I'm wondering what kind of shenanigans and hijinks that'll entail. Maybe it kind of feels too early for them to meet, but, you know, I will see how it goes. Uh, I'll say that. But overall, I somehow, by by all means, I don't understand how, but I am enjoying Joker by James Tynan IV. Probably my favorite of his Batman work. So I, I would have never guessed that. So I had to catch up on Geiger. I didn't read the first issue when it initially came out. I don't remember if I skipped the show or if we didn't have, you know, if we did a retro show. But this is the new Jeff Johns and Gary Frank book from Image. And I caught up. And in this issue, we get a focal character of a single mother with two kids. She works for the king in New Vegas because a lot of the characters here are centered around Vegas. And the different casinos are run by like different gangs and stuff like that. But she sneaks away with a big like thing from pre-war to try and get them out, get her family out of the situation. And the king wants whatever is in this bag. And it's not fully explained. I don't fully understand what it is. Um, I'm sure that'll be revealed as we go along. But she's killed by the guards and her kids escape. They're driving the car out in the wastes and they're attacked by big radioactive ants. 
and it seems super dire. And for like half a second, like it's getting kind of depressing. Like these kids' mother was just killed, and then these kids are about to die. But this character, which I guess the character we can call Geiger, I'm not really sure if that's like his code name or if that's just the title of the book, but he and his two headed dogs save them. The king has a Doctor Doom deal going on where Geiger screwed up his face. So it's all messed up and he wears a mask now. That's basically where we are. There's a lot of events that seem to have happened off panel between issues. A lot of things are referenced that we don't that we didn't see. And again, I did read the first issue to catch up. I guess that's fine. You know, you don't have to show everything. You can, you know, say that things happen off panel. It's just like a movie. You don't have to show everything. You can reference things that happen between scenes, but it is slightly, you know, it's worth noting. I've never been the biggest Gary Frank fan, but he's solid, like kind of the peak of Gary Frank. I think that most people regard is like when he goes like a little bit in that photorealistic angle, like the big deal with his Superman work is that people say, especially because he was working with initially with Jeff Johns and Jeff Johns was initially working on the comics with Richard Donner, you know, actually writing comics, you know, on the, the Brainiac story and the last son story. And I guess the thing that attracted people to Gary Frank is that like in those stories and in secret origin, he made the character like kind of look like uh, Reeves, but it's not really something that interests me. Like I'm not usually a fan of the photorealism. And then beyond that, like his work has like kind of dingy or dirty thing to it, at least recently. Like that's, what I got from this, obviously, it, it makes sense for this. That's also kind of what I got in Doomsday Clock, which also kind of makes sense there. But I'm not a huge fan of him, but his art is good here. I like the post-apocalyptic Southwest with slight twists. This is basically the exact same like setup as Fallout, particularly Fallout New Vegas, but just like basically all the Fallout games in general, except for Fallout 3 and 4. And those are things that I'm really, really into, like that aesthetic and those games. There's this thing going on right now where there's all these image books. There's Geiger, there's Noctera, there's Crossover, there's Radiant Black. All of them have been like covertly hyped up as maybe being like a new wave of superhero titles. And they all are like slightly superhero stuff, but there's some of them barely qualify as far as traditional superhero. But then there's also a lot of them are obviously different worlds. But part of it is that there's also, and, it, and it's, it could totally be just a bleeding cool nonsense. But some of these creators are like, oh yeah, we're bringing superheroes back to image and it's, it might be a shared universe. But like this book Geiger, I don't think this can cross over with anything in any like realistic way beyond, you know, getting into full on, you know, multiverse parallel universe, time travel type of stuff. But I like this book. I think I am going to continue with it. I like the, uh, the world and lore. The kind of titular character has a really cool design, and it's pretty fun. I'll take this over Doomsday Clock. Yeah, I I think Gary Frank's art started getting messier and more dirty when like around like around Batman Earth One. That's when I say it happened. I think I've slowly just not become as big as a fan of his work. This looks fine, but it you know it's. I think I've seen things that look better. Maybe I'm just not as much as a Gary Frank fan as I used to be. And, you know, tastes change. 
Yeah, this is, I, I mean, for, upon reading the first two issues, like, all right, Jeff Johns likes Fallout New Vegas, and he's like, let's make Fallout New Vegas the comic book. Overall, I'm pretty fine with that. He's doing his own kind of deal with it. There's kind of a Game of Thrones deal going on with the villains. They're very much like a house, evil houses going against each other. Plus, they got the whole medieval thing going on. They're using like swords and knight's armor, which is like a weird aesthetic for like desolate desert wasteland. So I'm happy that it's not just like, copy and paste mad max aesthetic it's it's carving out its own thing and i like the design for as of right now let's call him geiger it's kind of a he's kind of like got like a dr phosphorus deal going on but it looks cool you kind of also think of blight from maybe batman beyond overall i like the visuals of it but like even in this issue events he's fighting giant scorpions giant ants that's right out of new vegas very much so but i do like how the ends of the book they do promise like, all right, your answers are going to be revealed here. So it's, it's stringing you along. There is like an omnipotent narrator that lays out the scene for you, but at least like, it's telling you like, Hey, you're going to get, if you keep reading, you're going to find out it's not going to, at least as of now, two issues. And it's not going to completely just drop things and not tell you something like maybe like a JJ Abrams show would. So uh, it's got that going for it. Overall, I liked these two issues over Noctera because I think, me and Dan read the first issue in Octara and we didn't really care for that. So in, in the DC, DC writers coming over to image to do their own thing. This one I'm much more sticking with to over Noctara. Yeah. Overall, other than that, it's, yeah. I think it's good. And there, there's a Tomasi book that's coming soon, which I think was like, like kind of accidentally or surprise revealed in an ad in the first issue of this. So I'm sure we'll all try that issue out, you know the first issue of that out which should hopefully be nice and i do want to one last thing is i'm not a huge batman beyond guy so i wouldn't have thought of blight but the comparisons there and that's a really badass character design on blight who i guess was i mean blight's probably loosely inspired as like a beyond future version of dr phosphorus maybe who's very also much really, so who's also a really cool design yep all right we'll bring dan back and then we're going to take you out. We're going to talk about some Spider-Man books here. Yes. So our next issue is Giant Size Amazing Spider-Man King's Ransom number one. Written by Nick Spencer. Art by Roge Antonio with Carlos Gomez and Z. Carlos. Spider-Man goes to his fellow heroes to assist him with helping them help, I guess, bring Boomerang or save him. So the Avengers we're talking about here are Iron Fist, Luke Cage, Jessica Jones, Hawkeye, and Wolverine who are referred to as the New Avengers in this. Oh, sorry, Spider-Woman as well. Can't forget her. They're referred to as the New Avengers, so obviously that's what they are. Uh, we get a pretty cool double splash page of the Avengers fighting against the villains that have all met up like outside this like manhole cover where Boomerang is underneath like hiding in. So Spidey goes down to the manhole cover when J. Jonah Jameson suddenly starts the live stream of Spider-Man's new suit. And announcing that print is dead. Oh my god. <laughs> uh, that's an inside joke that we all have. Anyways, but he actually releases these pro spider slayers, which basically allow like followers that like you know, fans of Spider-Man to attack the villains themselves along with the Avengers. So that's kind of funny, I guess. Uh, Spider-Man catches up to Boomerang underground and has a heart-to-heart with him until the Boomerang Revenge Squ- Squad shows up. And in this squad here, we have, I think, Speed Demon, Shocker, and Hydro Man, I believe. 
So down the street, Black Cat shows up to steal Kingpin's tablet and provides it to Spidey, who tries to go for the last piece of the tablet himself until a ghost shows up and demands that a sacrifice, or actually, no, the only a hero with a true heart or something will be able to get the last piece. So Spider-Man's kind of scared about that. And he actually decides to get rid of his new suit and take on the ghost with his, you know, classic you know, red and blue suit. And he passes the test, gets the tablet without dying. And then he's attacked by Shocker, Speed Demon, and Hydro Man before being knocked unconscious and waking up in his apartment with Black Cat. And in his apartment is a note from Boomerang basically saying that he betrayed Spider-Man and that this was the only way back towards the life he wanted to live. We get Boomerang kind of celebrating with his like villain friends in a bar and he's kind of hesitant still kind of feels bummed about it in some ways that he had to do that to, to Peter because you know he was close to him. I mean, they lived together. <laughs> but anyways, the end of the issue sees Fisk getting the tablet who everyone thought would be used to reincarnate his wife, Vanessa, but turns out he actually uses it to reincarnate his son, who he still very he misses very much. And that is where our issue ends. So, yeah, this definitely definitely has like kind of like hints of the old tablet saga back from like the early Spider-Man stuff with the Kingpin, but obviously a different take on it. And the whole boomerang thing, it's disappointing to see, but I, I think it, it was a pretty cool, pretty cool t- plot twist. I feel like most people probably thought, you know, halfway into this, that, oh, Boomerang's going to have a change of heart. He's going to team up against Spider and they're going to save the day. But uh, it didn't turn out that way. So I applaud Nick for, you know, Spencer for making it that way and not sticking to a very predictable outcome, I guess. So, uh, Mike, what did you think of this one? I don't like the double turn here. I really think that by the journey we were on, boomerang should have stayed a good guy but maybe that journey is not completely dead yet and we'll pick it up later the rose is back that's kingpin's son um i'd rather have the rose back than vanessa because i feel like if you bring vanessa back that's a thing we've already done to death a bunch so this is a new dynamic to it the new suit's gone i called that happening also you know spider-man's in his traditional red and blue on the cover here i kind of felt that that was going to be the way this goes i liked this story i don't know why it needed a giant size issue to cap it off this kind of really could have just been spider-man 66 and we could have been done with it overall yeah it was fine uh i liked how the the i like i liked the new avengers reunion here they even they acknowledged it too I liked how they were even confronted peter it's like hey you don't show up and hang out with us enough and that is playing to the point where Spider-Man has been busy and we see all the stories that have happening in Spencer's run. Uh, good callbacks all around. I thought it was, you know, good. And we'll see what happens as we enter the next big story, which I can't remember off the top of my head. We'll see what happens. We know we'll know we're going to get round two with Kindred eventually, maybe a hundred issues in, but you know, it, it's all about the journey too. And that's kind of how Spider-Man's been. Uh, you're not going to get everything all wrapped up, especially with people having long runs. But it is kind of crazy to think that, and I mentioned it last time, we're over 70 issues if you count like the side issues of Spider of Spencer's Spider-Man. It's like I am starting to think that if he hits 100, I think that might be it, and then we'll see what happens next. So we'll we'll see. But overall, it was good. Still, once again, another art team on the book. But 
I'm not, we just gotta, we gotta basically hit a point where like, we just have to stop mentioning it. Cause it's going to keep happening. We're, we're going to have a rotating just team on got, it, but just gotta accept it. Yeah. And we just have to accept it. Like it looked good. I think this looked better than last week's when it was the, the double Federico team on it, but yeah, it like it was good. I I mean, if I'm left upset that Boomerang had the turn, I think that's what I wanted. So I and we'll I guess we're gonna play with a thing where Spider Man has to really you know play with that judgment of character again. He let someone get close and he got burned. What's what's gonna happen the next time? Like for me, is is it? I think he's gonna have to make the next choice with again with Kindred and try to bring Harry back. And what's gonna happen there? I think that's all kind of a setup that we'll address again later there. Um, which, you know, is a good layered thing. We'll see what happens when we when we get there. But overall, no, I, I like this. I don't know why it needed a giant size issue. This could have just been Amazing Spider-Man number 66, but we'll get to the next chapter of this saga in, I think, probably next week in Amazing Spider-Man number 66. But I'll, I'll go into the other Spider-Man book here, which is Amazing Spider-Man Spider-Shadow number two. It's part of this new what-if line where basically the what-if it's it's Marvel What If, but like over a full arc. It's not just one issue. You're getting like, I think, four to six issues here. This is Chip Zdarsky, Pascal Ferry, and Matt Hollingsworth on colors. And the whole What If here is, what if Peter completely bonded with the symbiote and didn't get rid of it? And the end of the first issue, he kills Hobgoblin after Hobgoblin murdered Aunt May. So he's spiraling and kind of going even more closer, bonded with the symbiote at this point. He's starting to see the benefit to himself in killing his villains as it stops them permanently. He attacks Jonah because he's tired of what the bugle says about him and even like breaks his hand to the point he's got to get like a, a huge kind of robot thing to get his hand healed back together. MJ tries to reconnect with him, but it, it might be too late. Like she goes to his apartment and finds him like he's sleeping in the symbiote and it's just like hovering above the bed. It looks all weird. The The Fantastic Four, well, more so Reed is running tests to be like, hey, I think we're pretty close to a permanent bond with that symbiote. And he tries to send out the human torch to figure out where Pete is so they can get it off him. And then the big moment here is that uh, Kingpin sends Shocker and I think it's yeah Shocker and Scorpion to attack Peter. And he just brings Kingpin like the arm and the tail of Shocker and Scorpion be like, I'm done with them. And then he kills Kingpin. So that's a huge deal. And then the ending here is that Jonah bankrolls a new Sinister Six to try to take down Spider-Man. But before they can strike. Doc Ock is attacked by an undercover Eddie Brock saying it's his job to stop Spider-Man. So now I don't really know what's going on. Overall, I thought it was good. I might I might tap out here just because it's I think there's a, a threshold on on Elseworlds where it's like if it gets too weird, sometimes you want to see, but it's also like, okay, I'm out. I'll come back later and see how it wraps up. I'm kind of hovering on on how that is right now. But I do enjoy the Pascal Ferry art. I I, I think he's able to have a very i guess freedom in the design because as the symbiote starting to take pete over more it's getting much more wilder with the kind of white lines in the suit uh for the eyes especially he's kind of like gotten more arachnid like where the eyes are not just the traditional spider-man eyes it's like three dots now so kind of something new and different to play around with but overall uh i might be tapping out here i might not we'll see the next time on the rundown, but I'll go to Vince for the next issue of ice cream, man, ice cream, man. So this is number 24 W Maxwell Prince, Martin Morazzo. So the setup here is that there is a live TV program where they're raising money to save the life of a man named Jerry. And we follow along Jerry's life 
No one is donating to this fund to save his life. He's getting divorced. His body is degenerating. He gets a tooth removed. He's losing weight. His hair starts falling out. He's fired from his job. There's some darkly comedic advertisements along the way for ice cream, which, you know, obviously the book is called Ice Cream Man, but we've also seen some of this lore for this ice cream. In previous issues, there's something, there's some jokes about lobsters, and there's some pretty funny, like, meta antidepressant kind of drugs. And at a certain point, we're told to drop the comic book that we're reading right now, or Jerry, as well as a dog, will die. And this is loosely referencing, I think, a national, like, classic National Lampoon cover. But it's also a thing that you, you know, you've seen in all kinds of other media. And basically that happens since obviously I didn't stop reading the comics. So Jerry's dead. And I guess the dog is as well. And now they have to raise money in a telethon for his funeral. And there is a joke that the phones, you know, for the show were not plugged in correctly. But that's not really, that's not really the joke here. It's not like they screwed up and, uh, you know, people were trying to donate money and they didn't get it. It's, it's still that, like, that's a throwaway gag. Still, it's that no one was giving money. So the whole thing is loosely about helping those who are suffering or how people do not do that. And there's also some bits on addiction. Uh, the guy is described as being an addict. And there's actually a point in the issue where it says, like, check this out. Like, if you're an addict, and it is actually a real help site. I just figured I'd uh, type it in because it's a weird site. It's something like Shatterproof. Maybe it's Shatterproof.com or something. Uh, or Maybe it might be .org, but I went to it, and it is a real help site for people who struggle with addiction. But this was a solid issue of Ice Cream Man. This wasn't like super experimental like some others have been, either on the writing or the art side. But it's uh, what you'd expect from this series. The same kind of you know dark comedy and satire and meta elements and tinge of horror and everything like that. Really good stuff. This book, I, I would at this point say like if... A week Ice Cream Man comes out, I'm not reading it on the bottom of my stack anymore just because, like, after every issue, I'm just like, that was some dark stuff that I just want to go and contemplate about for a little bit. I didn't do that with this week, but, yeah, I was left with that again after this issue. W. Maxwell Prince has a very he, – he's got a gift, and it's dark comedy that makes you feel bad for laughing at some elements – that happened in the book. Like the lobster thing is like really funny, but also kind of messed up in its own way along with the, the self-help medication. But I'll just echo you and you know, the courtesy of time, Martin Morazzo is still great. W Maxwell Prince do also great. Like it's just another solid issue of ice cream man where at this point I'm just kind of waiting to see how long this goes and how far it's going to reach because it's been really, really good uh, since jumping on with you on it. One of my favorite books, for sure. Yeah, yeah. All right, another image book, a new number one, Time Before Time. We'll bring Dan in. He's recapping this. Yes, bless up to my my homegirl, Cindy Lauper. If only it was time after time, but unfortunately it's time before time. So whatever, shout out to her, though. Anyways, uh, Time Before Time, written by Declan Shalvey and Rory McConville. McConville? Uh, art by Joe Palmer and colors by Chris O'Halloran. That's an Irish name. So our story begins back in 1987, where a man, woman, and child are in a hotel. 
when the child asks about Wi-Fi and flips out when he realizes that it isn't invented yet. So that's a little strange. We then fast forward to 2140, where we see the man, this man, I guess, uh, named Tatsuo, uh, Tat for short, I guess, return from a time warp. Uh, Tat is suffering from a sickness that has been caused by all the time jumps he has been made. He has made, and finds out from his friend Merv that the time pod that he's using needs to be repaired. So that kind of makes him upset because I guess that's his source of income. Uh, so then we get some more backstory on him. We see that Tat is kind of in debt to this group called the Syndicate, and he's currently paying them back by transporting people to other time periods, um, whether to get away or you know for business or whatever. Tat and his friend Oscar kind of get to talking about stealing a new pod so that way they can kind of escape and go do their own thing. You know, Tat's kind of like, eh, no, we're not going to do this. You know, and then eventually they're like, oh, let's actually do this. And then he, before he can actually spring it and start doing it, uh, he has to go back to work and help out more people. So uh, he takes this one guy back to 1963 where he's escaping being accused of murder back in 2141. So in 2141, Pat is informed that Oscar was captured and made it back okay, but apparently he went through a lot of crap. So he goes to meet him in this town called Avalon. Uh, Oscar recounts his time in the future where he spent about seven years locked up and or fighting wars and other craziness. And he's pretty much like super aged now and like really old and in a wheelchair and stuff. So Pat's kind of freaked out by that. Uh, he goes to see Frank, one of his other friends, about the last remaining pod. As he stops to look at it, he is attacked by this agent uh, known as Nadia Wells, who boards the pod with him because basically as soon as she shows up, other people show up and try to shoot him and her, and they both have to escape in the pod going back to 2042. That's when she, that's where she wants to go back to. But all the the blaster fire from onto the pod actually fries the like transporting time thing, so they get transported to like this weird time, which we don't really like. We kind of see in like a, a splash or like a, a panel, kind of like showing the time, but like in different fragments of numbers. So obviously something went haywire here, but the pod is shot, and they're able to escape, but they're they end up in who knows what time. So this is a very interesting premise. Obviously, with the inclusion of time travel, you know, a lot there's a lot of time travel <laughs> uh, stories out there, right? But I think this one has a pretty cool premise. The introduction of kind of slowly slowly giving us as the readers more information on kind of what's going on. I think that's a really interesting tactic that Declan uses in this book. But overall, I thought this is a really interesting story. It kind of reminds me a little bit of Paper Girls in some ways. So take it with a grain of salt like that. But I'm definitely going to stick around for a second issue. I think this is really good. My only gripe would be that it's not called Time After Time. But, yeah. It was okay. great, at least to me. I don't... I, time Before Time, I think, is going to be more make more sense because of where they end up. But, no, I love this. The art is terrific. Uh, Declan Shalvey, he's really good at what he does. And I think he has the cover for this. But I the art here was also very, very good by, by Joe Palmer. And then... Chris O'Halloran on colors is just we we've talked about him before. He's terrific on color work. 
Uh, you said it reminds you of Paper Girls. It reminds me a little bit of the movie Looper with Bruce Willis and uh, the guy who played Robin in I can't remember his name right now. Top of my head. Uh, O'Donnell. No. Oh, well, so Joseph. Yeah, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Yeah. Oh, okay. Directed by Ryan Johnson. That's true. It was directed by Ryan Johnson. It was an all right movie. But because uh, uh, their, their, their whole thing in Looper is what they, they kill people and they can escape through time. So this kind of the same deal here. But no, I really, I really like the concept and I, I'm totally down for this. Yeah, I don't, I don't have much to add except the art. Um, I'm not really familiar with Joe Palmer. I mean, a lot of the art, as you guys noted, is being not carried, but a lot of the appeal of it lands on Chris O'Halloran. But the art itself by Joe Palmer, who I'm not that familiar with, was really fantastic as well. Not to interrupt you, but like, there's some cityscape shots in here that that I can see ending up becoming like a laptop or phone background to me because they just look that cool. Yeah, it's just got it's got a really nice mix of like a cartoony style, but it also kind of fits with like a noir slash sci-fi. Like like it, it fits genre, but also is has a very like classic kind of cartoonish style to it and i really like that mix and then o'halloran you know especially some of the scenes i I think the first couple pages in particular like you know use really vibrant like moody colors and stuff like that and just looks really great i would say i don't know so much for you vince but like this reminds me of something like i would maybe see on like adult swim like a a long time ago because just of way the way it looks the way it moves it's very reminiscent of like an old school kind of anime looking series with how fluid the motion is on different aspects of it. And that really draws to me because of that. So I'm, I'm really excited to see what they do here because you're playing with so many elements that uh, make it stand out in different ways through just the art itself with the way, what time they're in, but also the color and the mood is going to be effective in different ways too. All right. We'll head to fantastic four. Yes. The 32nd issue of Dan slots run This is kicking off the hyped-up Bride of Doom story, which already had its climax spoiled on covers. It's going to be Doom and Victorious, but I'll get to that in a second. And it's funny because, you know, this is the current hyped-up arc, and then literally within the past day or two, Marvel has announced and hyped up the next thing, which I guess it's the 60th? No, that doesn't make sense. I don't know. I guess it's the 600th issue or some kind of Hallmark issue, I think. and. They're having Mark Wade do a backup story or something like that. The co- the actual cover for this issue, though, is way more enticing to me because it has Johnny embracing Elijah, who impersonating his current girlfriend, Sky. So into the issue, Johnny calls up Crystal, one of his many other exes, to give him some advice on Sky. And Luna, the daughter of Crystal and Quicksilver, is really creepy and basically says that Johnny's going to screw it all up. And for some reason, Latveria is bringing over and showing off all of its royal treasures, like historical items and artwork in New York, just like as a gallery thing. It's kind of weird. And the Fantastic Four attend. And Lija is actually impersonating Sky here, which is, uh, you know, as he's on the cover, which is revealed when actual Sky shows up. And it's like, there's two Skies. So Ben, Alicia, and their new kids, the little squirrel and little Cree kid, they bail because they're like, yeah, Johnny can deal with this. We're out of here. 
and some cyborgs calling themselves Ultimatum have a globalist gimmick and attack. Like, I honestly, I'm not sure that the lead time works, but I would not be surprised if Slot was watching Falcon and Winter Soldier and is like, hey, the way that they changed the concept of Flag Smasher, I want to do that in my thing. That's basically the thing here. They're like globalist dudes. Uh, so that leaves Victorious and the Love Triangle to banter and carp with each other while fighting off these cyborgs. And Lyjah storms off back to the scrolls, but there's like a little bit of a tease that that may have been caused by Alicia manipulating like a little statue figurine of Lyjah. So she may have her stepfather's powers, the puppet master, which I think if, if that is the case, I think that's a really cool development. Somehow Johnny ends up in the bed of a third woman. He doesn't end up with his ex-wife, Lyjah. He doesn't end up with his current girlfriend who he's like soulmates with Sky. He actually ends up sleeping with Victorious, Dr. Doom's like lead guard. And he then is like getting out of bed and basically ends up hiding underneath the bed while he witnesses Doom pop in with the hologram to propose to Victorious as a political marriage. So this is so damn soap opera-y. Johnny is being a hot potato, hot potato between three women, but I'm kind of enjoying it, and I just want more Elijah. The Alicia development is cool. I like seeing all the interactions and the chemistry building between Ben, Alicia, and their new kids. Um, the kids are pretty fun, and I want to see more Elijah. I don't know if I'll get that because she gets kind of written off of the book, written out of the book right here. It depends on if Slot takes the book over in that corner. There's a second story here drawn by Javier Rodriguez, who's obviously fantastic. You know, he did History of the Marvel Universe, which we covered on the show. And it starts with a flashback to Reed, Ben, and Victor, a.k.a. Doom, in college. Uh, and that part's pretty cool, and you could kind of cut it out and put it in History of the Marvel Universe or something. But then in the present, there's a sword fight between Doom and Reed. And upon winning because it was like a deal, like whoever wins has to do something for the other. Upon winning, Doom makes Reed be his best man at the wedding. And this bit was dope looking, and it kind of works on its own from the main story, but also obviously directly ties into it. So it's kind of up and down. I don't love it, but this issue was kind of fun in a weird way. We're in the fourth issue of Black Hammer Visions, Mariko Tamaki and Diego Olartegui here. Maybe the trippiest issue I've read in this series. All the characters are acting in a TV show as Colonel Weird is going in and out of reality. The snapshot stuff here with the soap opera backdrop is pretty funny and goofy, but it's handled well, but really nothing to this issue as a whole. Art was very crisp and good, but I, you know, I checked. I, I haven't missed an issue, but... I don't know what's really going on here. So, uh, yeah, that's all I got. It's, it's kind of probably be the fastest review of this show. Yeah. I don't have much to add cause I was completely lost, especially since I like barely know these characters in the first place, like when they're regular, uh, the next issue sounds pretty neat though. It's Kelly Thompson and Leonardo Romero doing that. Like, I forget what they're called. It's like skull man and, and bone digger or something. I don't know. They're really cool character designs, and I like that creative team. Yeah, yeah, same. All right, let's uh, it's let's quickly talk about the X Men books this week. Previously on X Men. 
So Children of Adam, I can be quick. Uh, this is Vita Yalapak Medina, third issue. So Carmen, a.k.a. Gimmick, she's special and perfect because she balances her YouTube videos about cosplay with being a superhero and all of her dumb teenage drama. She bought an old broken Magneto helmet on eBay for $500, which is kind of weird. Then somehow these characters are up in space on a ship and then they crash and something, something. She's romantically interested in the tomboy best friend, but they're interested in the the hunky dude. And then in the final panel, she's like all veiny. I don't know if she's turned into a werewolf or if she's sick or if she has some new power. I don't know. I kind of lost the plot and I don't give a crap. So I'm dropping this book. Uh, I was I kind of liked the first issue, but uh, no interest now. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to have to share the same sentiment over here in X Corp. Number one, Teeny Howard, Alberto Foshi. Another new X-Book in this ever-expanded, bloated line, the book highlights the elements of the X-Men running a huge pharmaceutical company and the trials and tribulations that go along with that as they, you know, they have those miracle drugs they, you know, they have and and they have to fight capitalism, I guess. That's the, the angle here. Uh, the cast is Angel and Monet are the heads of the company and they get the approval from Xavier to expand the corporation. So they need to add to their board of directors. So they recruit Madrox and Trinary to help them as Madrox is the one that's like making the drugs and Trinary can help Monet at different angles of the organization and like uncovers a cyber attack through her powers. So they got to fight that. And then Angel is at this like business meeting where he's confronted by bad evil businessman of old money and warns wants them out of business because they're making them look bad. They, they get like a new flying island as a headquarters. I, I'm going to be honest, like didn't hold my attention. I'm not the biggest angel fan, to be honest. I always kind of felt as him was one of the most boring of the original five. So anytime he's front and center, I'm just like, I don't really care. But I, it was nice to see, you know, Monet and Madrox again from my time as being a big fan of the Peter David X Factor run in the 2000s. But Madrox kind of felt a little out of character here, though. I didn't like it. Probably just not for me. There's At this point, there's probably an X-Men book for everyone, honestly, with how many books there is in this line. But yeah, in an already bloated line, I'm kind of reluctant to pick up any more X titles going forward. And now I'm starting to see if I want to cut out the ones that I'm currently reading. So outside of seeing Monet and Madrox again, nothing here that's keeping me sticking with this one. Yeah, pretty much same. I'm not familiar with this artist, Alberto Alberto Foce, or however you pronounce it, but he was pretty solid here. I actually kind of liked his art, but I just don't care. This isn't he, like it doesn't even really feel like a superhero comic, which it doesn't really have to be, but that's kind of what I want from an X-Men book. Well, that's this, the problem with all the X-Men books right now is none of them really feel like a superhero comic. Yeah, a lot of them at least, but like this and like Sword, like they're at the top of the tier as far as that. Um, and this reads like an actual Hickman book, like almost more than, you know, some of the actual Hickman issues. Uh, and I don't think that's in a good way for me personally, or at least th the context in which I'm pointing it out here. This book is really need to, lean in, need to lean in on how this whole Dawn of X status quo, basically bullshit, waiting to all fall down and crumble, which has always been obvious. But then, like, do I want to read years of the X-Men all being glum assholes? that think they are, quote, simply superior, as Monet offers as the slogan 
in this issue. Also, Warren, I think, is kind of written down here. Like his, he has like a ton of business experience and expertise beyond Monet's, but like he's kind of taking like the number two back seat here. I feel like it would be interesting to see him be a bit more assertive and like have a bit more input on things, but he's kind of tagging along and playing the number two. But it doesn't matter because I'm pretty certain I'm not going to read the second issue. Yep. All right. We'll bring Dan back for Guardians of the Galaxy. Yes. So. This will be a very quick uh, recap here. So, Guardians of the Galaxy number 14, written by Al Ewing, art by Juan Pugueri, uh, colors by Federico Bli. Throne World 3, Doom stands over the seemingly defeated Guardians of the Galaxy with a sword when Hulkling shows up and whacks him in the face and takes the sword back, to which Doom uses his like mind control powers to basically switch bodies with Hulkling and use him to kind of attack the Guardians. And that's pretty much where that fight is going. So the other half of the Guardians of the Galaxy run into Ego, the living planet. So cool to see him, I guess. The other Guardians of the Galaxy back with them. Uh, They're able to defeat Doom by swapping his mind control to Rocket Raccoon's body. So basically Rocket Raccoon is in Dr. Doom's body and Doom is in Rocket Raccoon. So they decide to induct him into the Guardians of the Galaxy so that they can use him to find out everything that he might be up to. So... I thought this was a kind of cool little way to, you know, handle this. Seems pretty plucky as how the Guardians usually are. But yeah, this is all right. We'll see where it goes. Not really much else to say there. I like that we have two, like we have enough big rosters where you can have two things going on. Yeah. That's the strength here. When, when the images came out and we saw what the full, like, I think it's like 20 people deep roster is going to be. And Dr. Doom was in there. We were all like, all right, what's Dr. Doom going to be doing here? And he kind of fits in because like, it makes sense. Cause he's like trying to do his own thing and he messes up and the guardians call him out on it and be like, well, all right, you're going to be, you're going to be with us. And we know you won't be lying. If we make you sign, uh, sign your debt and, and name to us, because there's one thing you won't do is you won't go back on your word. Cause you're doomed. So they, they stick him in Rocket Raccoon's body, and then for him to get his own body back, he has to not double-cross them, which I I kind of like that. And I, I liked how he was like kind of using his sorcery to uh, to mess with them a little bit. I thought that was kind of clever with the uh, with the mixture with the armor. The one for Gary Art is really, really good here, especially with Ego. I liked I liked the, the way Ego is drawn. But oh, yeah. overall, like two issues into this new status quo... On an already, it felt like so much has happened, but we're only 14 issues in. But earlier, we were talking, Vince was talking about how we're like 30 some issues into Dan Slot, Fantastic Four, and then we're almost 70 plus issues into uh, Nick Spencer, Amazing Spider Man. But it still feels like a lot has happened in this book. So I'm, I'm still enjoying it. But I'll quickly transition over to Superman number 31. And in Superman number 31, this is Philip Kennedy Johnson, Scott Kudlowski, and Norm Rapland on art. And this is the second part of PKJ's second story arc as Superman and John were answering a stress call on this alien world. And it turns out that Superman was duped and this parasite he thought was dormant has reemerged and it set a trap and it's already infected seemingly everyone on the planet and they want to get revenge on Superman. So John is also duped by the son of the ruler um, who he's trying to like kill John to protect his father who's, you know, this parasite. But now we have to kind of race for John to get to his dad to save him. And oh no, Superman's been affected by it. So 
what's going to happen. Overall, this is fine. A lot of the father-son dynamic here is still the strength and core of the book, though I kind of feel that PKJ is kind of treading water here because now we know that the books are going to split in a few months. Tom Taylor's going to handle Superman and make that the John book, while Philip Kennedy Johnson's going to get action and make that the Clark book. So I'm kind of wondering if we're going to get like a couple story arcs that are just going to set up this split for when it happens, and I'm excited for what both they're going to do with it. Overall, though, I'm not as gripped in by this as the first two issues as I was at the beginning, but we'll we'll see how it goes out. Uh, I thought Scott Gablewski and Norm Ratland were really good here. Norm Ratland is kind of a, a stool, uh, old school Superman guy that I've seen like going back to Jurgen's era, uh, being the inker. So it was nice to see him here again. But Vince, what did you think of Superman number thirty one? I thought it was just fine. Uh, John figures out some new way to use heat vision in this issue, which I don't fully understand what is trying to be conveyed there. The art was not clear to me at all on what he's actually doing and how he's doing it. It's like kind of explained when he tries to tell Clark how he does it, but I still didn't get it. And I'm not sure that we need new powers for Superman anyways, but whatever. I think... I think what he was doing was like he was keying in the heat vision. So he was kind of just like blasting it in bursts. So like that was what I got from it. But yeah, I will agree. Not exactly conveyed on clear what he was doing, but I, I'm, it's not a new power, but it's, you know, John still figuring out, you know, putting a new twist on an old, on an old classic, which I think is a good, good thing. Yeah. I mean, not a new power. Is just a new application of it. So actually, scratch that point, but I still don't understand what he's doing. Right. Um, but, I mean, I think the writing here from Johnson is, like, fine. Like, it's a decent enough story, you know, trying to save this alien race, but there's, like, you know, there's factors that Superman can't as easily control because it's not punching. So there's, like, you know, there's, like, peop- there's, like, a beans taking over other beans' bodies that Superman is also susceptible to. The Godlewski art, like I like him as an artist, and I remember reading he did an arc on Tomasi's Detective Comics that I thought was strong, but I don't know if it's if it looks different here or if it's just the match on the character and the story. But I wasn't as impressed here. It, it seemed like a little bit not detailed enough, or like I, I, I mean, I, I, I don't know really how to you know attack it, not attack, but like how to come at it critically. But I don't really like it that much. Yeah, I I was I've never been a Scott Gugluski big fan of his from the stuff. I think he did some stuff with uh, with Bendis on Young Justice, him and John Tim. So I was never big fans of either of them. But uh, we'll see what I think. Gugluski actually did the the Future State Superman and Metropolis with John. That might have been John Tim's. They, their art looks very similar to me. But I'll let you go to Wonder Woman number seven seventy two. Yes, this is. Written by Michael Conrad and Becky Quinn, art by Travis Moore, colors by Tamara Bontalon. So Thor, the DC version of Thor, is a dick. And Diana is trying to figure out what this whole thing is going on with Yggdrasil dying. And the warriors in Valhalla are not, no longer resurrecting after battles. It's all a mess. Ratatosk, the little squirrel dude, it's pretty fun. She goes to visit the dwarves because, I don't know, Ratatosk tells her to. I don't really know why. Uh, but also she leaves her sword behind, actually Siegfried's sword. 
Um, and rather than like, and she realizes that like when she's not that far away, but rather than going back and like just grabbing it, she's like, I don't want to confront Thor again. So like, I'm just going to go forward without a weapon, but maybe the dwarves, she's going to make, get a weapon there. But instead she runs into Dr. Psycho, who is a long time Wonder Woman villain. I think technically, I don't know if he's in the movies, but he's randomly in the Dwarven Forge. It's similar to her where it's like, he doesn't belong there at all. And he has like a little bit more of an understanding that he's there and that he doesn't belong there, but whatever. She doesn't have her lasso of truth, but she grabs a rope and gets down to some bondage to torture anyways. The term safe space is used. And then she runs into Nidhogg, who needs an eagle egg in exchange for a key. So she takes a secret slide down the tree, hides inside the egg, and is eaten by Nidhogg. And this is all quite silly, but I guess in a classic myth way, like not too different from like classic Tales of Asgard Thor. The whole amnesia and out-of-place plot still isn't much my thing, but the art carries it. And the Young Diana backup is about missing parts of Amazon history and stuff, and not that exciting. I'm, uh, I'm almost positive you read the wrong issue. Uh, I may have. Yeah, you read 771. 771. You didn't... So, quickly to recap, yeah, all that happened, but then... Wonder Woman's on the journey. She finds Odin, and now she's going to take down the Valkyries. So scratch that. Sorry, that's the first big goof we've ever had. You know, 771 issues. You, you there was a, you were looking for 772, Vince. Yeah, well, I had to catch up, and then I guess I started the recap on the wrong one and then forgot to go forward. It looks like a dead man appears, which is cool. But, yeah. but, but kind of my conclusion was... And I think I've said this in previous issues. Me personally, I'm not really liking this run, the whole amnesia and out of place thing. So maybe I'll, I'm not sure how many issues are still in this arc. I might skip one or two and then come back when she's hopefully back in regular, regular time on regular place, etc. Well, uh, I don't think you'll have to wait long because a lot of what dead man does is like, he's like the guide for her that's trying to help her remember who she is. So he's kind of reaching into her a little bit here. Dan, what did you think of wonder woman number 7072 since you actually read it? <laughs> I thought it was pretty good. Yeah. I, I, I like this wonder woman run right now. I mean, I think it's pretty good. And one, one thing I just want to mention, uh, Vince, Monica just texted me and told me to tell you that she enjoyed your recap, even if it was not the issue that we we're <laughs> Must be recapping. <laughs> so it, at least you have one fan out there. We'll give it to him. It was a well done recap of seven seventy one. It was just the wrong issue. <laughs> no, but I, no, I, I'm really excited about this. And yeah, this is probably one of my favorite books that I'm reading right now with DC. So yeah. that isn't Batman. Yeah. Well, I think I'll, I'll mention this. I think last week I mentioned that the most intriguing book was. Uh, swamp thing but this would probably be right behind it with what exactly we're doing with wonder woman and where does it go i would possibly you could say the book might be carried a little bit more than the art than the story but paired together with the colors by tamar bottom it's a very beautiful book through and through and it's it's well worth the price of admission just for the art alone and then i i kind of like wonder woman hanging out in asgard it's something different like i almost prefer this over just doing the same thing we've seen again which is kind of what we've seen where someone comes in, they do an arc and then just that also, I think we should look forward to uh, wonder girl. Number one by Joel Jones is next week. 
So we'll have, we'll have more Wonder Woman in the show. But Dan, we'll throw it to you. Justice League Last Ride, number one, which is our second to last book. Yes. Justice League Last Ride, number one, written by Chip Zdarsky, art by Miguel Madanka. Lois and Clark are chilling at the Fortress of Solitude, where Clark has a bad nightmare of Metropolis being destroyed while he's holding up the, I guess, Daily Bugle, like, globe or not Daily Bugle, wow, Daily Planet, right? Globe. Uh, he wakes up and sees a distress call from the Justice League, so he goes to meet up with Wonder Woman and Flash at the Watchtower, where they are greeted by a very obstinate ba- uh, Bruce Wayne until the Green Lantern Corps shows up uh, with Lobo. Uh, the Lanterns ask the JL to hold Lobo on Earth while they attempt to set up the new Lantern Corps on the moon. Uh, Batman does not, like, does not like this plan and storms off to go stop Mr. Freeze, uh, who is currently terrorizing Gotham. So Superman shows up to the battle, quickly, quickly disposes of Mr. Freeze, and it's like, we need to talk. And Batman's like, meet me up later in about an hour at the Batcave. And they talk. Batman reluctantly agrees to help, saying that the best place to hide Lobo is back in Apocalypse. And that is where our story ends. So this is a great first issue, I thought. I thought the pacing was pretty good. The art by Madanka here is pretty good as well. Uh, There's a pretty nice splash page of Batman that kind of stands out to me from this story. But uh, yeah. I like this. I know my co-hosts might not have liked this as much. I know we talked about it a little bit before we went on air, but any other thoughts, guys? Well, the, well me, me and Vince will differ, but I, I really like this. It's originally, Dan, this was supposed to be a digital first book, but then they went and like changed it last minute, I guess, and now it's in print. I, I wondered how Zdarsky was going to handle this whole JLA is disbanded and fractured deal. And I felt this is one of the best layered takes we've seen as a whole, particularly for the, 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 the d- dynamic of Batman and Superman don't like each other. And instead of just punchy, punchy fight fight, it's actually like, these are two people you can clearly see used to have a history and they have fallen out of line with each other. And I think they'll be back in you know, the traditional world's finest by the end of it. Like I like that there's a layers here to it. And it's not just like, I don't like you because we have different ways of doing things. Well, I think it's Miguel Mendoza, or I'm I'm not entirely sure, but at least that's how Vince pronounced it when he was recapping on Aquaman because they were the artist on that. It's really great here, and it was great on Aquaman as well when I would flip through that book. would love to see more of it. Definitely prefer this to the current JLA book now, but we're only two issues into that, so we'll see how it goes. But yeah, overall, I, I kind of like it. They're kind of getting into a little tropey here because we're going to go back to apocalypse but and something must have happened that caused martian manhunter's death that's why the the league's all fractured but i'm down for a kind of jla future fractured mystery i know vince isn't as much as i am but i'll let him have his point here yeah so my first question uh is this barry allen or wally west in the flash costume because as far as i can tell they have red hair i don't know dc doesn't know Okay, yeah, I guess that's the answer. Does um, it matter? Ask. <laughs> well, it doesn't really. Te- Dan, technically it should, but in in the Bendis JLA book, it it's clearly Barry, but he's got red hair there. So make yeah. it up, make up your own DC. Like uh, that's part of it. I thought it was Barry when I read it until Vince pointed out it was the red hair. So 
Yeah, I'm not 100% certain on the pronunciation of uh, Miguel's last name. I think it has one of those accent things on the C. So I think it might be like Mingdongcha or something like that, like similar to like, like I think he's Eastern, he might be Eastern European or maybe, I mean, the first name's Miguel. So maybe he's like Latin American, but they use similar accents. I don't know, but I, I assume that it's something similar to like, for example, like basketball players like Nikola Jokic or uh, Luka Doncic, but I don't really know. Unfortunately, DC and Marvel do not do like pronunciation videos when they hire new creators. That would be pretty helpful. I guess this is a total else world. Like you guys basically said that because there's a billion things that have happened off screen before this story takes place. It's like, oh, Batman killed Martian Manhunter, I think. Well, uh, he got him killed. I don't think he killed him. Well, Superman uses a slightly different word. Um, my but my guess, guess is they went to Apocalypse, and because Apocalypse is a fire planet, he died because Martian Manhunter doesn't like fire. Yeah, and then Lobo killed the new god somehow, whatever. <laughs> um, and then my, like, like the art's cool. The art's good. I like Zadarsky. Like the story is fine. Whatever. It's it's a separate thing. But going back to like one of the first books we talked about on the show, basically my take was, and it makes sense in the context of the story. But everyone is just a jerk to each other here. It's completely like Batman and Superman are complete. It's mostly them just being assholes to each other, and like it's kind of set up that I guess there is a reason. But like I don't know if I really want to read this them being jerks to each other i probably read the second issue because i don't even like i may have already kind of accidentally dropped off of the main justice league book because i probably skipped it i probably missed an issue or two and then i don't know if i really care to catch up but i was not as hot on this as you guys right all right we'll go into our final book booster gold number two from november 2007 it is your retro book for this week this is Jeff Johns and Jeff Katz writing Dan Jurgens and Norm Rapmond on art. Part two of the 52 pickup story, which as this series spins out of the weekly series of the same name, 52, which spun out of the end of Infinite Crisis and Booster Gold played a kind of integral part of 52. So he out of his popularity, he gets his own series here. But Booster is with Rip Hunter going through the time stream where they encounter an incursion where they see things have changed and it needs to be fixed. So Booster Gold is basically going to be the guy that has to fix the time scream every issue. That's kind of the, the kind of deal of this book, to my knowledge of it. So this time it involves Sinestro coming to Earth and making contact with Guy Gardner before he becomes a Green Lantern and before Ab and Sir even died and lands on Earth. So if Booster doesn't stop them from talking, how will never become the Green Lantern on Earth? earth first which causes a domino effect where the sinestro core take over earth and the green lanterns lose the sinestro core war which is coincidentally also taking place right now in the green lantern books being written by jeff johns at this time in 2007 so booster has to set out to prevent this and he encounters sinestro and they fight and he ends up kind of beating and playing off his ego and saying that he comes from the future and in the future they all wear rings for the sinestro core because sinestro notices the ring he's wearing because booster gets his flight powers from one of the a stolen legion of superheroes flight ring so the kind of a funny panel of sinestro laughing and he goes like oh great uh they all love me in the future and he just disappears and this is at a time when guy gardner's kind of at a low point of his life and he's he's in california to go watch the rose bowl because 
his alma mater, Michigan, is playing in it. But he goes to hang out with Guy at a bar and get a drink with him. And he basically opens up to him about the rough family stuff he's going through. And he sets the time stream right there, right then. But he also basically acknowledges, like, well, me talking to him makes it so he's always going to be in the shadow of Hal wanting to be the number one. Well, he's always going to be known as the number two. So it's kind of an interesting deal while where, you know, the time stream set right, but also boosters like I kind of prevented this guy from maybe being the best he could be in some ways. But overall, I thought it was good. The art. Yeah, it's starting to look a little bit dated in 2007 with Jurgens and Ratmund. I, I think Jurgens art looks good now. And I'm thinking this because, you know, obviously different anchors, different coloring much later after 2007 this is over a decade old. But overall, like good issue two for for this series that I think ran I want to say 25 issues not entirely sure but gentlemen what do we think can we just talk about the one pa- uh, panel where Sinestro is like going like this with his mustache yes it's amazing <laughs> I love that no I mean yeah this definitely feels a little age but I mean I still think it, it I, I still found it enjoyable you know a lot of good action and some heartfelt stuff at the end there but no this is good yeah, I mean it's it's definitely a great book. the The book is part mindfuck fan service DC jerk off material. There's all kinds of references to events and alternate universes, and like you, there's panels where they're going through the time stream where you see different things. You could phrase but, that differently. I just want to say, but it also has a lot of great character work with Booster, with with Guy, even with Sinestro, kind of. And yeah, you both basically said, but this is like an era where Jurgen's art is just like barely looking old. Uh, like it looks from the 90s or 80s, but it's not that egregious. And I think some of that might be on the coloring because like, I don't think it's like Rebirth Superman, which I think he did draw at least some of his run, like, you know, a couple of issues or, or an arc or something like that. And I don't think it looks quite like this. So no. I'm it not looks sure more modernized, and I'm assuming that's because of the coloring and inking. Yeah, uh, but this is a classic run. These first, you know, dozen issues or so with Jeff Johns involved, and then it stays pretty good the entire time. It runs surprisingly long too. I think the final issue is like 57. Oh wow! 40, so it much went a lot further be, than 25. It might be 47, but it goes pretty far. I, I mean, this goes through the very end of uh, pre-flashpoint because. The final couple of issues are one of the, I think the really the only series, like the only ongoing series that directly tied in the Flashpoint last couple of issues of Booster Gold. Well, that and Jeff John's Flash also tied into it. Well, that's like, a, I mean, it leads up to it, but like there's not a Flash issue that's like happening at the same time as Flashpoint. Yeah. yeah. All right, gentlemen, we're at the end. It's that time. Picks of the week. My pick, I think I'm going to go ice cream. No, Geiger. Geiger. Okay. Um, I got to go time before time. Number one. Yeah. I'm going to go time before time. Number one, that, that combination of the writing and art just puts it over Vince. Any reasoning for Geiger? Uh, I just really like the concept and just like the, the world building and stuff. Uh, I enjoyed it. Nice, nice. All right, good week of books. We'll be back next week with more. Stay tuned, stay safe. Adios.